You are listening to The Hemp Startup Journey. My name is Jason De Los Santos, co-founder of Spectrum Labs, a hemp extraction facility in Asheville, North Carolina. I'm sitting down with hemp entrepreneurs, scientists, and politicians willing to share their perspectives, lessons learned, and how we can make an impact on the hemp and cannabis industry for everyone. Asa, welcome to The Hemp Startup Journey. How are you today? Oh, I'm so great. It's so great, Jason. It's really great to be here with you and the Hemp Startup Journey folks. That's a great honor. Thanks again for inviting me on today. Absolutely. So th- there are a lot of reasons why I wanted to talk with you. Uh, we connected on LinkedIn, had a couple of conversations. Uh, but one is that I don't think that I've met anyone in what you do, all the compliance, all this technical stuff that was so excited about what they do like you're just like like a coach man you're just you know yelling and roaring just like yeah we gotta do this so i was i was pumped for that oh yeah i love it i really really am passionate about this stuff and you know on on, at the dinner table my wife and daughter when she's home from college they have to tell me to kind of calm down they're like yes we know you love read warning reading warning letters and talking about it just bring it down a little bit but yeah it's really it's really inherently my nature to uh to be excited about this. So thank you. <laughs> thank you yeah, for yeah. that comment. Nice. So um, here's a, where I'd like to start off with. Um, let's say you're at a party, maybe in, in a previous lifetime, right? Since we're not having that many get-togethers. Uh, and somebody says, hey, Asa, what do you do? How do you answer that? Oh, Asa, are you there? Uh-oh. I may have lost you. There we are. There we go. Okay. Sorry. Did you hear, did you hear what I asked? We're at a party. Yeah, so we're at a party. Somebody asks you, hey, Asa, what do you do? How do you respond to that? I love that. I love that because I'm a big, I'm a social person. So I love going to parties and networking events and all that. So let's say, you know, before the pandemic or let's say after the pandemic, I'm at a party, everyone's talking. I jump into a conversation and say, hi, I'm Asa. Someone says, what do you do? I would say, well, I'm a really passionate dietary supplement and hemp product manufacturer. I've grown up in the industry. I've been doing this for 20 years. So after working for other companies, being a manufacturer and marketer, I've decided to go out on my own. So I've started my own regulatory consulting company that focuses on analyzing marketing risk and web, social media, and labels. And then I communicate that risk to my clients in a way that's effective and also compliant and lower risk. And have you heard about APA, the American Herbal <laughs> Products Association? And I'd like to talk about APA. So that's kind of my gist or my elevator pitch, if you will. Awesome. Okay. And um, so you've been doing this for, this for for quite a long time. You've worked with a lot of companies, uh, probably working directly with CEOs and marketers. And uh, you seem to be a guy that's really been uh, hands-on with um, a, a lot of these companies and sort of in- interpreting like regulation and just you know, what to do and what not to do. But um, regarding cannabis and hemp, how, how do you end up there? Like, how do you get into the industry? Oh, oh I love it. So... Several years ago, I was working as chief operating officer for a company called Quicksilver Scientific, a really wonderful company. I still take their products to this day, who makes dietary supplements and hemp products. So that was kind of my first exposure to large scale CBD and hemp product manufacturing, marketing and distribution and all the complications that go along with with that. So at Quicksilver, I was also in charge of their THC licensing division. So I got to meet companies like Wana and Molson Coors as well, too, which 
you know, several years later, Quicksilver and Molson now have a deal uh, to use Quicksilver's increased bioavailability. So that's kind of how I got into the world. Then from there, I was recruited to help run a very large hemp vertical CBD company and contract manufacturer. So that was great for me, Jason, because I got to learn about farming, extraction, supply chain, and then further, uh, you know, further learn more about the complexities with marketing and credit card authorization and all that stuff that goes along with, with being a hemp company. Yeah. Uh, did you ever get on a personal level, as much as you want to talk about this, did you ever get any, uh, any weird looks from family or friends when you would say like th that you work in cannabis or was everybody pretty accepting? <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's a great question. So my wonderful mother-in-law that lives, lives out of country, she sent me a pair of marijuana socks for Christmas. She's like, it's because you work with marijuana. <laughs> I'm over dramatizing this a little bit, but um, and and my uh, my father-in-law is a police officer in, in in Canada, so yeah, some some funny looks saying, well, isn't that illegal? Or yeah, when I talk about hemp cannabinoids, oftentimes people go right into the dispensary or the adult use market. Mm -hmm. So obviously, the collective consciousness is changing. And as a side comment, to go way back in time. I started in clinical herbalism in the late 90s. And back then when I told people, hey, I'm studying to be a clinical herbalist, people would automatically think that I was selling them, wanted to sell them marijuana mm -hmm. or something. So it's been interesting to look at the collective consciousness and the change in people's viewpoints then to now, and even in the past few years with hemp, uh, cannabis. Yeah, very interesting. Um, yeah, I've certainly seen that when I was growing up, my mom would always say, no, marijuana is bad and blah, blah. And, you know, it was, it, it, just all, all the, the evils of the world attached themselves to marijuana. So uh, for me to get into this industry was just, just interesting from that perspective. Uh, and I've seen just so much benefit that can be derived from it. Uh, you know, a lot of opportunities and just a, a lot of really interesting, positive things. Um, but there still are certainly some folks, no judgment, of course, but just the fact that there still are some folks that have the, the, the history of marijuana and all its evil doings that are still attached to even just hemp. Um, I was just speaking with a client recently that said that one of their, um, I think he said maybe one of their employees, doesn't like even being in the same building as hemp, just because uh, if it has any level of THC, um, you know, and I think that's where uh, a lot of the education that people do, you know, folks like yourself and a lot of folks in the industry helped us say, okay, well, you know, THC is here, but not there. Uh, and I think that's a really important conversation that still needs to be had, it seems like. Yeah, that, that's a great point. And it's, and thank you for sharing your perspective. It's really interesting. I mean, I grew up in the Bay Area, California, I graduated high school in Palo Alto. Very, you know, very California, very mellow. Uh, you know, can cannabis in general wasn't really demonized. But if you look back at the history of the plant with reefer madness and and, and all this, it's got it. The, it we continue to shake off the negative connotations of this wonderful healing plant, which really makes the po the point that we're at here in the hemp and cannabis industry really a big inflection point. We'll look back on this point, this you know, 2020, 2021 time and say, we'll look back in 20 years and say, that was really a revolutionary part in the cannabis industry because the FDA is saying that, you know, CBD is not a lawful dietary ingredient, but there's consumer demand. Um, there's all these companies that are making wonderful, great products. So it's really, we're at, we're at this 
really interesting interim stage. And I would just wanted to say, I know we'll probably talk maybe a little bit about APA later, mm -hmm. but the American Herbal Products Association has been around 39 years and they started their cannabis committee 11 years ago. So 11 years ago in the dietary supplement world, people didn't even want to mention the word cannabis. Right. So that's kind of another example of the foresight of APA, but also how the collective consciousness has really grown and, you know, over the past few years and, and more. Mm -hmm. I know this is not what we had uh, discussed about talking about today, but I wonder if a lot of the, um, it, you mentioned that uh, a lot of folks nowadays, they see hemp as just like, okay, it, it's, uh, let, let's say safe, right? I know that's not exactly the, the proper term, but um, with the rise of psychedelics, I wonder if some of those sentiments are being, are, are going to now shift to psychedelics as in like, oh, well, psychedelics are bad. And then there are a lot of companies and agencies and organizations that are trying to uh, bring it out to the mainstream and pass legislation uh, for, for approving <laughs> psychedelics. Yeah. Psych psychedelics is a completely different, um, you know, ball ballpark in my world. I think there's probably a lot of true medicinal benefits, but it's certainly, you know, I, I, I don't see a world where there's an open market for, for psychedelics mm -hmm. because people, you know, don't really use them recreationally. But, but to your point, Jason, I think that as people become more, you know, people became more accepting of hemp cannabinoids, and then maybe they become more accepting of adult use cannabis, maybe it, there will be some bridge to, yeah, I'm going to become more accepting to, you know, a psychedelic mushroom or something like that. Whereas 20 years ago, I would have never mentioned this uh, you know, if I if I called my friend and said something about mushrooms, he would have hung up on me. So <laughs> it's good to see that the industry or the the community of people that believe in healing has certainly evolved and continues yeah. to evolve. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all right. So we're going to get into a, a lot of different topics. And um, one of the recent things that you mentioned was how to avoid getting an FDA warning letter. Right. I think that that's that's so um, like ominous, but I think in a lot of people's minds that are in the industry. And I was hoping that we can start in social media because yeah. pretty much everybody has a social media account or several. And um, one of your recent articles, uh, and I'll post a link in the show notes about this, uh, I think you titled it, Warning Letter Review, What Went Wrong and How to Avoid. And I was surprised to see that several of the warning letters to these different companies had at least one statement related to their social media activity, whether it was a hashtag, whether it was just a, a simple statement, um, I was wondering if you can talk a little bit about that and um, wherever you want to start, whether it's maybe a story of one of these things or, you know, introduce us to how the FDA is looking at social media activity. Yeah, that's a really good comment. The, the F FDA and FTC, they are clever folks. You know, they have limited resources, in, you know, in, in my opinion, but they're able to connect the dots. And so since most people are marketing on social media, this does include YouTube and videos and infographics and things like that they're paying close attention to it. So let's start with hashtags and, and meta tags. Um, the best way to shake a stick at the FDA or FTC saying, look at me, look at me, is by using an uncompliant hashtag or meta tag. So over the past a year ago, I don't even think we saw warning letters that included meta tags. Those are, I'm not an SEO person, but those are really the, the things that drive, like Google AdWords that drive traffic to your your website. So using an uncompliant hashtag or meta tag is certainly a way to shake a stick and say FDA, FTC, come look at me. But it's also a way to take 
with hashtags in particular to take an otherwise compliant post and make it uncompliant. So a good example is I may have a social media post for a brand or something that was talking about, hi, I love, my name's Asa, I love this product. It helps keep me resilient as I'm hiking in, you know, in, in the Rocky Mountain National Park here near where I live. Now, if that's, that's a fine post, that's a good way to engage, it's personal. But if I put hashtag pain relief or hashtag pain or hashtag inflammation, I've then taken an otherwise compliant post and made it uncompliant, which is really interesting. And so in my regulatory consulting business, I see the following happen all the time where companies are using blogs or informational blogs on their website to educate the consumer about what CBD is and what it does. And so what I always recommend is leave that to Dr. Google. People can search what the benefits of CBD are because it's, there's a very fine line between an educational blog where you're talking about, hi, my hemp cannabinoid product uh, has been used for Alzheimer's or depression, that type of thing. Those are very high risk words. And so it's very easy to take an educational blog and turn it into a claim. And one of the best ways to do that is by having a call to action, such as a hyperlink to a product in your informational blog, a product picture, or some type of other, you know, call to action where you're saying, hey, come check out, that's why we developed our products, come check it out. So blogs are really commonly, you know, well-intentioned, but they're turned into, um, you know, into claims. And I would, oh, one other thing I'd like to point out is engagement. So social media engagement. <laughs> this is something that is very unique to the dietary supplement and hemp cannabinoid world. And so people that come from secondary and tertiary, tertiary industries, such as apparel or tech, might not understand that by engaging on social media, you're potentially turning in, you're, you're substantiating a claim. So here's a good example. Someone may write something on your Facebook wall or Instagram wall or whatever it's called saying, hey, this product is great for my insomnia. I slept great in the morning. Well, that's a claim. And yeah, you should probably delete it off your social media, although you're probably not going to get a warning letter just for that. But if a company engages on that and, said, and likes it, retweets it, smiley face emojied it, say says thank you in any way, they're substantiating that claim. Hmm. And let's go a step further. That even that even counts for retweeting. I I I need to make a shirt or a button that says no late night retweeting or something. <laughs> yeah, it's gonna be a little cuter than that because yeah. there were there have been warning letters in particular with COVID where people have retweeted and you can see what time they've done it now, retweeted things late at night, probably you know sitting on their couch watching TV that have turned a clinical study about, let's say, COVID into a claim by retweeting it and saying, well, our product will be back in, in stock soon. Don't mm -hmm. worry. So by retweeting it, reposting it, liking it in any way, you're substantiating that. That's that, that, that's crazy. Um, I, I can understand why they're doing that. But so let's say that I I was just recently hired by a company. I'm a marketer and I'm asking you questions and asking you for advice. What can I do? Like, how can I market a hemp product? Like, what can yeah, I, say? I love that. And I actually wrote a post about this. I think it was, it was something like how to advertise your products without making claims. Because 
that's obviously the next question. You've told me what I can't do. Mm -hmm. You've helped me explain risk, which I know we'll probably talk about a little bit later. What can I do? Well, I think here, here's what I like. So an authentic origin story, you know, video, people love videos. So it can be shot on your iPhone or whatever, uh, telling why you got into the, the, the market. Hi, my name's Asa and I got into this because of my passion for natural health. You know, an authentic origin story, a company origin story is really important. I would like to say that there just was a recent warning letter that came out with nine others for depression and anxiety claims last week where somebody in their about us section, they talked about, they got into, I'm paraphrasing here, they got into making their product because they had problems with depression and mental illness. Mm -hmm. And that's why they started their company. And then they've linked to a product. So what they should have done is told their origin story without using the buzzwords depression and anxiety and definitely should not have linked to their product because that's the material connection that the FDA and FTC look at. So I also like creating authentic excitement. <laughs> so I was, I was looking at this post before we met today, Jason, and I, I actually, in, in the blog post that I was talking about, I had a picture of me in hiking in Rocky Mountain National Park with a fake Instagram post or, fa or Facebook post or something that said, our employees of Waldstein loves hiking in the Rocky Mountains. He uses our hemp CBD product to help him help keep him resilient. This is kind of an authentic way. I'm not making claims. I'm not using buzzwords, but I'm showing real people use this product and I'm showing, you know, I'm showing, I'm basically empowering people to get outside and do nature. So things like that are really important. Also social equity and charity, um, charity benefits. Mm -hmm. um, I really love those are double positive companies can say something like a here. I, I made up another one. We have a wolf sanctuary here in Colorado. Mm -hmm. So here could be an example. The, we love the wolf sanctuary and we love supporting them and we love you too. So, you know, write, write it, write a post on social media and tag us in it and tell us why you love our product and why you love the wolf sanctuary. Mm -hmm. No claims, please. Right. And the post with the top five most likes, we'll donate $500 to the Wolf Sanctuary in your name. So you're kind of creating social engagement, but you're also giving back in a way that's authentic. Um, you know, because I think consumers are, are really savvy. They're going to be able to read if you're just saying, hey, I gave 10 bottles to my local fire department. Look at me, how cool I am. No, it's got to be authentic. Right. And it's got to be written into the company you know, ethos and mission. Sure. And then some other differentiators, how, how can people market their hemp products is, is a topic here. Look for, I like to look for trade association membership, full disclosure, I'm, I'm, mem I'm uh, chairman of Hoppa's Cannabis Committee. I love it. It's an ORG. So trade associ association membership, talking about the U.S. Hemp Authority seal, that's really important. More and more hemp companies are getting into B Corp certi certification and also organic, to name just a few. You can tell I get it. You're right, Jason. I do get excited about this. You are, man. This is what we're talking. That's I really, really love it a lot. Your enthusiasm got you on the on, on this podcast. Um, do you think talking about the the associations? Um, do you think that the consumer knows what GMP is or or what these quality seals are? So just uh, our company, Spectrum Labs, we're going through um, GMP accreditation now, and I, I I'm not sleeping for one just because there's there's just a few things to do, as you know. Um, and we're doing it for a few reasons, you know, just to 
help us uh, create standards um, for our business clients as we do private labeling. I think those folks understand what GMP is, but do you think that the consumer knows what GMP means? Like, do they understand that? Well, you'll see two, I love that. So you see two different seals on labels, GMP and, you know, our CGMP and the mm -hmm. C means for continuous. Uh, so CGMP or GMP, they're, they're used interchangeably. So you'll see GMP and then you'll see GMP certified. So GMP certified to the consumer, I don't know, do they really, do they really know the difference? I don't really know, but I think as consumers become more educated, people are asking for this. So it's a compute, uh, consumer driven. They're probably asking you at your company, Jason, at Spectrum Labs, hey, my customer said, is your product GMP certified? Are you GMP certified? So the market's really dictating, I think, and continues to dictate the importance of GMP certification. So it is really important. I will say that if a company is putting GMP compliant or GMP on their label, that is a marketing claim. And you would definitely, you could very likely get in trouble if you were just putting GMP haphazardly on there. But then the FDA came through and said, you're not GMP compliant. Here's a warning letter that could open up to class action lawsuits because obviously you need oh, wow. to be truthful and misleading. So third-party GMP certification, I think is a great way. And I'm glad you're doing it because it really helps, as you mentioned, develop best practices, but it also can, it's a great training tool for staff going through the certification process. So mm -hmm. yeah, I'm, I'm very pro third-party GMP certification if, if a company can do it. So or, or you've heard of companies putting a GMP label without getting GMP certified? Is that, that's a thing? Yeah, yeah. Oh and it's good. They don't, I mean, I don't know if they're writing GMP certified and they're not, but yeah. it's very common to just see GMP or GMP compliant as a little seal on one of the many. Gotcha. Oh, like they, they self-certified. <laughs> yeah. And it, so it's actually okay because for example, I have a very large client that writes GMP compliant on their label, mm -hmm. but they're not third-party GMP certified. They have been inspected by the FDA. They received no warning letters. They're GMP compliant. The, the GMP certification obviously gotcha. isn't, re, isn't required, uh -huh. but it's a good thing. And here's a fun personal story. So I've had the FDA show up my, at my facility three times <laughs> and you know they, they come in for GMP inspections, they show their badge, this is a federal, they're federal employees. Hey, we're here for a GMP inspection. And I've been very fortunate that through three inspection, I've received no 483s, which is basically a major observation. Mm. And that major observation can turn into a warning letter, which mm -hmm. is public record. Happy to talk about that if you like. So I have a really good track record with the FDA. But during one actual inspection, the person came up and said, hello, I'm with the FDA. I said, can I see your identification? I got out my SOP for what to do in the FDA. FDA comes. I just did an event on this. I highly rec recommend having an SOP for what to do when the FDA comes. And I said, well, our office, we normally have, uh, you know, our, our sit downs with the FDA and it's in use. I'm actually having a third party GMP inspection right now. So they actually came in on the exact same day when we're having a third party GMP <laughs> inspection. That was really cool. They, they said, oh, that's great. I'm glad you're doing that. Why don't I hang tight for 10 minutes while we get him out of the conference room mm -hmm. and get yeah, and get this uh, investigator into the conference yeah. room. So that was actually pretty funny. Oh man, um, going back to what we were talking about before with some of the the do's and don'ts, and uh, in the article again, it'll be in the show notes. The warning letter review. Um, you had some of the a, a pretty good summary 
um, you have these bullet points here, basically um, cleaning up social media posts, uh, hashtags or claims, which you, you just spoke about. Uh, don't market to kids, uh, which that makes sense. I, I don't know if I've ever really thought about it that way. Uh, don't use buzzwords. So like coronavirus right now or COVID. Uh, blogs count as claims. You just talked about that. Uh, enforcement trends. So I guess that uh, as, let's say, conditions or diseases trend uh, and not associating your product that's not been scientifically proven, blah, blah. Um, and then uh, implying sy symptomatic relief for COVID symptoms is bad. Uh, that's a good way to put it. Like, it's just bad. Like, just, <laughs> just don't do it. Um, I think that's a good summary and people can read more about it when um, after they listen and they can read your article. But um, are there any other ways that, uh, let me put it this way, in the company, who are the people that need to be trained on the the communication do's and don'ts? Because uh, I would imagine that it goes beyond the marketer, the marketing person. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, and I and I wrote a post on this too. I wrote it's. I think it's something like developing a culture of compliance from within. So it's it's got to start at the top. It's got to start with the CEO and the executives in the boardroom. If they don't really care about claims, nobody really else is. But I wanted to put a pin in that. And just to, and go back to cleaning up old social media posts, so I can make sure that we're getting a point across mm -hmm. for for all of our um, listeners today, so they can help avoid warning letters. Mm -hmm. So in recent FTC action that came out against six companies, I think this was a month or a month and a half ago. I I love reading these as I as I mentioned, I'm really <laughs> passionate about it. So it's like a comic book to you, like you're reading these and like laughing about <laughs> what these companies claimed. Yeah, yeah, it's like it's like a. Um, a tabloid. It's kind yeah, of like tabloid. Right. Yeah, it's like guilty, <laughs> guilty pleasure, but a way to you know learn what sure. we, how we can protect our companies. So in there, the FTC cited social media posts, tweets, and Facebook posts, I believe, that were two years old. Mm. So this company had an infographic and other things that were two years old. So when I say social media posts, I want to make sure I'm getting the point across that yeah, social media social media posts. You want to go back. I think the homework for everyone today is go back and retroactively clean up any claims on your Facebook or, or Twitter, for example, because the FDA or FTC would look look at them in the same way that they would look at them um, if you just did them today. Hmm. Perfect. I can't remember what we're talking about now. Yeah, yeah no, that, that's that's good. Um, that, that's perfect. And that I, I don't think I would have thought of that uh, because I can imagine the company that, let's say they're they're small, they probably don't have to worry about because they, they might not be in the crosshairs of the FDA. But then if they grow quickly and then there's a lot more attention to them, well, then you have all these posts in your history that then can put you at a higher risk. Um, and speaking about that, do you think that, because most of the warnings that I see, and I, I don't read all of them like you do uh, for, for as a pastime, do you think that small companies have to worry about this? Absolutely. The FDA and FTC do not discriminate on, on company size. So most of the warning letters, I've never even heard of these companies. I mean, there's over 3,000 brands apparently at the beginning of, of 2021. So there's a lot of companies out there and there's only a few big ones, but most of the time I've never even heard of them. So company size definitely does not protect you. Um, maybe, maybe, maybe it helps in some ways, but yeah, any, anybody, who is marketing their products with high risk claims is, you know, is, is right, is right there is right for getting a warning letter. Hmm. Okay. Um, can we talk about your uh, star rating? 
Um, can, can you give us a little bit, little uh, info about what that is? Yeah, yeah. So this was the, <laughs> so this is the risk ra rating system. I just call it the ACE rating system. I got to come up with something better, but I don't necessarily like talking about myself in the third person. But this was developed over 20 years of going into the CEO, the CMO, and reviewing marketing copy or social media strategy and stuff and saying, here's why you shouldn't, here's a claim that you're making, and here's why you shouldn't say it, and here's some lower risk ways to kind of get that same message across. So uh, I like to use anxiety as an example. So anxiety, until last week, on my rating system, I would call it a risk level of three of five. So 3.0 of five. Anything over 3.0 or over, you're definitely, you're, you, you can get a warning letter for that for, for sure 100%. But after the recent warning letters that came out last week with depression and anxiety claims, I've actually increased that to a 3.5 out of five. So again, anything three or over, I, I, don't, I don't use it all. So I, I love doing this. So. With anxiety, someone may say, well, I don't, want to, I don't want to get a warning letter. I also want to be truthful and misleading, but I want to get my marketing message across. What's another way that I can say anxiety that's lower risk? I would use happy mood support, balanced state of mind, you know, uh, a, a positive state of mind, mental resilience. These are all ways to kind of get that same message across in a way that's, that's lower risk. You know what's interesting? Um, I think about, I guess, yourself and, and what you do is that you're bridging all of these different things from um, from herbalism. Do you say herbalism? Is that yep, yep, clinical herbalism? Clinical background. herbalism, marketing, uh, operations, uh, legislation. Like it's really interesting that you're thinking about all these different dimensions and putting them together and thinking, okay, well, there's a, a certain risk at this juncture and here's what that is, you know, two stars or five stars or whatever it is. So um, change it, but I just thought that was interesting. Um, I, here's what, I, I think you should do this. You should have almost like, you remember how the government used to have their uh, their color system for uh, terrorism you know, right after 9-11, you know, orange and red and whatnot. You should have like a weekly uh, ASA star rating based on like the five or 10 uh, most risk, I don't know, like keywords or phrases and you know we would all be very highly attuned to that star system yeah i like it there's there's you know there's a lot of them in that high would would high risk be red would we call this red or something so let's say if we're gonna i, I like this idea jason so a lot of the red the red clans are obviously covid depression mm -hmm. um you know let's say camp cancer parkinson's yeah and then you you know back to enforcement trends you did talk about kids ch children elderly, people suffering from mental illness, they're mm -hmm. all considered vulnerable populations. So it's just a terminology, you know, I don't consider them vulnerable, but sure. what the FDA in particular, really their goal is to protect people. So right. if you're marketing to kids and saying that something's safe for children or marketing to, to seniors or people with debilitating neurodegenerative diseases, that falls into the, the red category, the high, mm -hmm. the high risk category. Yeah. Indeed. I did want to, you know, want to go back to your previous point about, you know, who, who needs to be aware of compliance in a company. We talked about really working compliance into the DNA of the company. It's got to obviously come from the top down from the boardroom, but really social media managers, I think it's the biggest opportunity for education in companies because 
as I mentioned earlier, a well-intentioned social media manager can take an otherwise super compliant company that's got great labels, you know, you know, their website's wonderful, they're doing everything great, they're GMP certified, but with the social media posts, they can sink a company. So, um, you know, a well-intentioned social media manager can sink a company by saying hashtag uh, COVID to pick a very mm -hmm. high-risk word. And so it, it really starts with, you know, from the top down, but really from the inside out, customer service people, um, people that are, you know, training social media managers, as I mentioned, market marketing folks. I work with a lot of people that want me to develop a best practice best practices individualized for their company. How do my customer service people interact with people on social media? Um, copywriters, copywriters is, is a great example because a lot of copywriters may not come from this industry and they'll say, well, I cited a bunch of studies, I listed a bunch of claims, I've even threw a you know, cute infographic on there and uh, that's just what worked in another industry. But that right there, is the core of how to really sink a company by making lots and lots of claims by trying to educate the consumer, if that makes sense. Yeah, how does this change if uh, in a retail setting? So you have a customer that comes in, never tried CBD, and they said, hey, can I take CBD for my diabetes? Like, how do you, as, as the, you know, maybe in some states might be a butt tender or, or let's say in North Carolina where uh, it's just hemp, how do we respond to somebody like that? Well. I'll talk to, I'll, I'll, I'll speak in generalities. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you're supposed to be truthful and not misleading no matter what you do. Right. That being said, you have a much higher chance of getting in trouble, uh, getting a warning letter or getting a, a lawsuit if something is searchable online. Now, if we're talking about in-person connections, mm -hmm. um, that's, that's our things that are behind like a gated login wall. This is going to be lower risk. Of course, you want to be truthful and misleading. That's my, my comment, you know, my, for, for the record. But, uh, you know, there's a lot more leeway with enforcement um, that I see when people are interacting face-to-face. -face. Yeah. I would like to say a personal anecdote. One of, my, one of my large clients, they were at a trade show a few years ago. And so any marketing material you have, is scrutinized the same. Just this, it's an extension of the label. So if you're handing out things at a trade show, the FDA definitely walks around and looks at things. So the FDA came up to my colleague's booth and said, hi, you know, your, your marketing material looks good, but I wanted to let you know that I found some stuff online on your website that didn't really look good. Would you mind cleaning that up for me? So that's an example of the FDA, you know, coming around face-to-face -face and helping companies get into compliance. But, mm. but back to your original comment, if it's something in person or printed material you're handing to someone, it should be compliant, but there's less opportunity for enforcement. Right, yeah. yeah. You know, sometimes I think about um, in our industry, the sentiment when I attend a, uh, a conference or speak to folks is that it's uh, oftentimes us as in people in the industry against the government, right? Like this is very contentious and uh, the government wants to put us down. They don't want us to make money or progress or, or to help people. But I, I imagine that it's, it, that's not the case. It's not, the, the, there's, there are more subtleties than that. And in uh, an organization like the FDA, like you said, their job is to keep people safe. Um, and just wondering if from your perspective, if you have any intuition as to like, at which point will the FDA say, okay, here's, what you can say or because right now it's basically you can't make any claims other than say maybe like quality or how it was made or something like that but is there will that ever 
come? Will, will that day ever come where the FDA can say, like, you can talk about these three things, for example? Well, you know, with, with hemp cannabinoids, I always look at the dietary supplement world. They're, one, they're basically one and the same, albeit cannabis is a very special herb and has its own regulatory uh, complexities and additional, you know, health benefits. Mm -hmm. So with dietary supplements, there are certain things you can say. These are structure function claims, such as quality of life. This product helped help me with a healthy night's sleep, uh, pr pr promotes or supports a healthy inflammatory response. So I would say with the hemp world, look to dietary supplements. You do have to have substantiation before making these structure function claims. Mm -hmm. There's also approved medical claims, which are, you know, you have to have a lot of data to get this. Randomly controlled clinical trials, RCTs, are kind of the gold standard. But what you can say is nutrient content claims. So there's a whole, people can contact me if they can't find it, but there's a whole list of, you know, claims on the FDA website that may say, good source of high in, rich mm -hmm. in fiber, that kind of thing. So the FDA gives you guidance on what you can say. It gives you some guidance on structure function claims, on approved medical claims. You can never say, but, but to your point, Jason, mostly it's you can't do this. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of why I have a business and why I've <laughs> developed this. Is you can't say this, so what, what can you say? So. The root of all compliance questions is, is I making, am I making a statement which can be construed as treating, curing, diagnosing, or preventing any disease? Yeah. So if it's a disease name, um, you know, or syndrome like depression or insomnia or hypertension, you can't say anything having to do with that. A few other, just as another kind of side comment here, which I think will be interesting to our viewers today, is what is a claim? You know, it's pretty confusing. What is a claim? So as a general rule, anything a drug is indicated for, such as Xanax is a drug indicated for anxiety. Anxiety would be the claim. Anything that's a disease, you can look up a list of disease. That's mm -hmm. pretty, like Parkinson's, for example. Uh, let's see, anything ending in itis, I-T-I-S, uh, means inflammation of. That's certainly a claim. And then, uh, let's see, what what is the other one? Oh, most things with the word anti, I, A, or A, N, T, I, anti, like anti-inflammatory, most things with anti in the title are considered claims as well. So I know that was kind of a side comment, but I really like to kind of wrap up, you know, yeah. what is a claim so I can know, first let's learn what not to do so we can learn how to market our products. Yeah, no, good, that, those are all good. Um, all right, so if we can switch to, oh wait, um, testimonials. Can we talk about that? Because yeah. I've heard so many different things about what you can or cannot say. Can you give, again, me, this new marketing person at a hemp company, what's the, the structure of a good proper testimonial? Don't be, okay. don't be pessimistic now. Like, give, me the, give me the positives. Like, what can I say? <laughs> okay. Because the customer can share their experiences and their excitement as long as they're not using buzzwords. Okay. So for, for example, a customer may say, Jason, I love your Spectrum Labs product. It worked great for my insomnia. I worked, I, I, know, I haven't slept that well in years. So insomnia is a claim. You're probably hosting that on your website or product reviews or testimonials. I'm gonna use both those words interchangeable here. So by you allowing that, you have an approval gateway, allowing that testimony or, or um, review on your website, you're substantiating that claim of insomnia. Now, the positive here is 
this is great. The customer is so excited. They wanted to write a testimonial. What you can do if you have customer permission and it keeps the integrity of the claim and you're being ethical and truthful and not misleading and all the other kind of things is ask the customer, are you allowed to say uh, this product, how about this product worked great for my dot, dot, dot. I felt refreshed in the morning. So you're simply removing the claim. You're adding an ellipsis, but you're keeping the integrity of the, the claim there. Uh, but yeah, product, product reviews and testimonials are showing up all the time in warning letters. So generally speaking, as long as you're not using any buzzwords, um, you, you should be fine. And if they are, you just ask the customer if you're allowed to change them. And as long as you're being truthful, um, it should be fine. Yeah. So, but do you, you can't, if a customer posts something, let's say on their Instagram page about a product that they used, um, there's no issue there unless they're getting some sort of a commission or, or somehow they're monetarily benefiting by making that testimonial. Is that the right way to think about it? Yeah, absolutely. Is there any monetary gain or commercial connection? If they're a, an influencer or, you know, brand ambassador, influencer, we haven't really talked about mm -hmm. that yet. If they're getting any kind of commercial gain, including free product, they need to disclose that and they should be held to the same company's code of conduct. So I help companies develop influencer guidelines. It's basically a one or two page. Here's what you shouldn't say. Here's the guidelines you sign. You sign off on this and it kind of, in my opinion, re removes a little bit of the, the liability. Now, if someone posted something on their Instagram page or social page that said, this product's amazing, I really love it, and they had a bunch of claims on there, they're allowed to say that as long as they're not getting material connection. That's fine. I mean, in my opinion, I'm, mm -hmm. again, I'm not, I'm, not a, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not sure. giving any legal or regulatory advice. But if your company liked it or retweeted it or reposted it, then you're responsible for those claims, if, if that makes sense. Got it. Okay. Are there any other subtle differences with an influencer other than what you've mentioned before about the do's and don'ts of social media? Sure. They, have, they just have to disclose, uh, disclose that they are an influencer or they're getting some connection. The easiest way to do that is hashtag sponsored or hashtag okay. paid. And that yeah. has to be above the fold. It can't be like the 30th hashtag. It's got to be, <laughs> got to be up there. And yeah. there are some really, really great federal trade commission guidelines for social media best practices and influencers. And I have those if, you know, I've kind of got a catch all on my website, mm -hmm. uh, Asa Waldstein, and I think it's resources. And I have links to a lot of those things if people want a, a quick go to, to to find those links. Okay, great. Yeah, we'll put the link to your site in the show notes as well. <clears throat> so changing gears here a little bit, um, like I mentioned, we're starting the down the road of uh, GMP uh, accreditation certification. And what would be your advice? You've, you've done this forever. And so as a new company, like, what would you say? Like, hey, make sure you think about this. Make sure you don't do this. And remember, we only have all day, so you can't. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, from one of the great things about growing up in the industry, pre-GMP, requirements, which for a company, for a small, started in 2007, and then every company had to be compliant by June, I believe, of 2010. So for growing up in a company that manufactured under some regulations or closer to food, and then then finding a, a way to interpret these regulations in a way that made sense for me, you know, it was a pretty small company, a couple million dollars at that time, and then as the company grew, um, you know, we kind of added added more a more robust quality management system. So to your question, my my advice is 
make sure you're interpreting the regulations in a way that makes sense for your company. What I mean by that is I'm often asked in my, in my business, I haven't been around that long, but I've been asked a lot to say, hey, I got this GMP company that came in and gave me 50 observations. Does this really make sense for me? I'm only a company of three or four people. Will you help me think through the perspective of the auditor or the FDA investigator and help me interpret these regulations in a way that makes sense for me? Mm -hmm. So making sure you develop a quality management system with operational efficiency in mind is probably rule number one. That's why I always recommend hiring a dietary supplement expert to help you develop a quality management system because if you develop a quality management system, which includes GMPs and testing, and that's for our listeners out there, QMSs or quality management system, it's the entire quality program. The testing, the strategy, the checking of the product, manufacturing checks, quality checks, all that. So if a company is developing a QMS in a silo that doesn't keep operational efficiency in mind, they'll be super compliant, but their company might go out of business because they can't make any darn products. Mm -hmm. And so I'm often, I'm often asked to go into companies and review their QMS or their audit reports or third-party GMP certifications. So when I come into a company and I look at their quality management system, I'll say, this was developed by someone from the pharma industry, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. And they'll say, how do you know? I'm like, well, this is everything that they're saying isn't correct, but we're masters of our own reality and our own destiny. And if someone came from pharma, from a giant $200 million company into a $10 million dietary supplement or hemp industry, they're going to use the same, inter- they're going to interpret the regulations in a way that they've always done. So making sure that you don't have too rigid of an interpretation because CFR 111 leaves a lot of room up for interpretation. Mm-hmm. So making sure you don't have too rigid of an interpretation because that'll hinder company growth, that's number one. But you also want to make sure that you are being compliant. So you want to make sure you're actually interpreting the regulations in a way that makes sense, but it's also um, you know, com- compliant and checks all the boxes and then some. Uh, when you mentioned QMS, is that a uh, just the the combination of all of our procedures and standards and how things are made, or are you referring to a specific type of software? Ah, got it. Thank you. Good clarification. Yeah, to, to, the, to the former, uh, it's just your procedures, testing, mm-hmm. processes, SOPs. It's everything all together, but kind of looked at from a 10,000-foot view. Okay. One of the things that I'm trying to wrap my head around as we're, we're starting this is the combination of where to put all the documentation, uh, how to keep track of the training, um, how to create some sort of a system so that I, I, I have this sort of what I call like lazy thinking is that I want computer or technology to do the, the reminders and the work for me so that I can do the best things that a human can do, right? Um, like, how do you think about all those kinds of things so that you can, the company can continue making what they're good at? <laughs> I like that. So GMPs, it can also stand for get more paper. It's a very paper, <laughs> paper uh, heavy, uh, you know, heavy, heavy regulation. So the FDA wants to see that you have checks and balances and logs of different things. Everything's got to be documented. Remember, the eyes of the FDA, if it's not written down, it didn't happen. That being said, there probably are, there are programs which can de-paper or digitalize a lot of the processes. They're, they're big, they're expensive, 
And I've heard of companies that have put all their eggs in the uh, the digital QMS basket, if you will, mm. and then they've got hit with a cybersecurity uh. threat, uh, which is happening more and more. And American Herbal Products, I believe, did a great free webinar on that a couple months ago on protecting your company and how they uh, cyber bullies or whatever you want to call them. They've been focusing on hemp cannabis industry and dietary supplements as well, too. So that's a detractor of having everything digitally. So it's hard. It's really hard to streamline this digitally. You can show that something's protected. So here's a good example. Your master, your master manufacturing record, which is your you know, recipe, how you make the product. When that, that can be written out, signed, and then stored in the cloud in a, in a protected area. And then when a member of quality wants to issue that, that turns it into a batch production record. They're essentially just going up into the cloud, printing off that scan, and then that turns into a hard copy paper that follows the, the batch or the product all mm. the way through. So it's hard, it's hard to streamline the digital aspect of it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, with, with training, as long as there are signatures, it, an approved program, excuse me, or a recognized program that allows you to store signatures, um, that type of thing, I think that's probably fine as well. Okay, all right, good deal. Um, all right, so I, I'm sure I'll be um, calling you up at all hours of the night trying to figure out this GMP stuff. Um, it, it's a lot, but I can see the benefit in it for sure. And, and especially also um, just with us, we've been having a lot more conversations with international clients and folks that um, are, whether it's South America or Europe, and it seems like, at least in Europe, there's still a lot of confusion about what's needed to import, that GMP is always part of the conversation. Like, you know, what, what kind of quality certifications do you have? Uh, so that's one of the big reasons why we went down that road. Yeah, yeah, but so true. I've, I've done a lot of international expansion. I'm married to a wonderful gal from, from New Zealand, and I, I built out quite a big business of, <laughs> in New Zealand uh, with increased bioavailability liposomes that I used to run a company that made a lot of those. So internet, I'm very familiar with international expansion in the marketplace. Usually a, a GMP certification from a reputable company like SGS or NSF, you know, or you know, there's other companies like Eurofins as well too, usually will suffice. But then you, a lot of companies, as you know, Jason, they'll want a certificate of free sale. Mm -hmm. um, and that, so that goes along with it as well too. Now, I would like to say, we talked about this during my last preparing for FDA inspections event. In my opinion, and this is based on what F one FDA investigator told me, that the more you re request a certificate of free sale, the higher up you get on the inspection process. So, if you're if you're really low and you you requested 20 of them, you might be next for the for the FDA inspection. So that's always something to keep in mind. Um, it, so I, I may have missed it. So the certificate of resale. Say a little, little bit more. What is that exactly? Sorry, certificate of free sale. Oh, free sale. I didn't enunciate uh, correctly. Sorry about that. So the certificate of free sale basically is something from the State Department, I think, of Health saying this company is in good standing and they make dietary supplements and hemp products. And that's usually what a lot of international clientele needs, um, you know, South Korea and, and stuff like that. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, good deal. Cool. Um, all right, switching gears. Uh, Again, here, one of the cool things about coming onto this podcast, they said, is that you get a uh, proverbial million dollars, monopoly money, right? Um, and so if I asked you, Asa Waldstein, you yourself, if you had this million dollars, what 
would you invest in in the hemp and cannabis industry? Like, what do you see out there that you said, like, you know what, this is really interesting, and I'd like to put my money into it? <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. I love it. Okay, so I did mention just recently that I did help run a company that did increase bioavailability delivery. Mm -hmm. So I said five or six years ago, in five or six years ago, the liposome world is going to be completely commoditized. And I've never been more happy to be so dead wrong. I'm happy to admit it. And so really what I've, what I've done most of my early professional career is finding items that are expensive, poorly, poorly bioavailable, and don't really absorb quickly, and put them into a nutraceutical delivery device, such as a liposome or lipid nanoparticle delivery, to help them uptake. And I love, I love this. It's so exciting to me. So if I had a million dollars, I would either try to find a technology to license or kind of develop my own natural increased bioavailability delivery technology. Hmm. That's really, really one of my favorite things to do. Interesting. And would that be just for hemp and cannabis or are there applications for other nutraceuticals or other herbs? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hemp, hemp and cannabis for sure. Because, you know, CBD has a very poor bioavailability rating. I think it's like 8%. I read on the WHO um, document yes, yesterday or the other day. Uh, so anything that's expensive, poorly, poorly bioavailable, and you need to act quick. So that's obviously hemp CBD. It can be on the THC side if someone just is using it for some type of relief. You mm -hmm. notice I didn't say pain relief. I said relief. Right. right. There. But complete applications in nutraceuticals as well, too. Interesting. And uh, uh, was a couple of weeks ago, I had uh, Nancy from uh, one of the brands on. And so one of their big selling points for their uh, gummies is their, I don't know if they say fast bioavailability uh, but, or maybe fast acting gummies. And um, I completely forgot to ask her about that. I was afraid maybe she would just cancel the call and say she's not going to divulge trade secrets. Uh, but uh, there seems to be certainly a market for that. There, there is, and and I and I know know Nancy, and when I was at Quicksilver, as I talked about earlier, um, they they were my first uh, licensing client for THC. So they do an, a fast uptake tincture that is based on Quicksilver technology uptake, and then they've got the gummy technology, the fast stuff that works really well. It's it's impressive because it. I, I don't know the the pharmacokinetics or dynamics, whatever the right word is there, but I believe it. It in some ways circumvents the digestive process, so it it works quicker, mm -hmm. and so it's fast on, fast off, and so yeah, I'm a big fan of of Wana and their uh, increased uptake technology they're doing over there. Okay, cool. Um, what um, any other cool opportunities or maybe good potentials in the hemp industry or cannabis industry that you're seeing? Maybe not not quite there yet, but they might have hint of of growth. Yeah, I love it. You know, I would say that I'm giving away all my secret sauce, my million dollars. <laughs> well, I would say that really bioavailability backed by science. Mm. There's not much out there at all. There's not even, there's barely any, you know, 10 person two way crossover PK studies. That's for the people out there that are in the science world. That basically means checking the blood level of a product. So you can check it at time zero, two hours, four hours. So there is immense opportunity for people that are showing that their product actually absorbs. You, you actually pay for what you absorb and then backing it up with some amount of clinical data. Mm -hmm. There's a huge gap there, which means that there's a huge opportunity as well, too. 
Okay, cool. Um, do you have any insight into or gut feeling into where the industry is going over the next 12 to 18 months? Like, what do you think might be coming down the road? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, the introduction of HRA 41 and the 117th Congress, basically an identical bill to what we saw in the last session that basically, you know, legalizes, for lack of a better description, hemp, hemp CBD, um, as long as people are following dietary supplement uh, manufacturing um, requirements and also new dietary ingredient requirements, which basically means proof safety. So I think that in the next, you know, in the next year or so, may, hopefully sooner toward the end of 2021, that we're going to see the the FDA act on CBD uh, approval that'll probably go through this having to prove safety than new dietary ingredient route. So I'd like to say everyone out there, if you're looking to be a mature hemp cannabinoid company, investing in safety and safety studies is what you should be doing right now if you want to be a lasting company in the, in the hemp world. Interesting. Okay. I've not thought about that. One thing that I was um, reading about recently, and, and this was somewhat big news last year, it was uh, applying blockchain technology to hemp and cannabis. Um, I don't know if you've seen any good applications of this, uh, especially now that it seems like blockchain and, and um, I know Bitcoin is not exactly the same thing, but just that it seems to be surging even more. I wonder if you've spoken with companies or know anything about that blockchain technology and how it could be used in the industry? I, I only know enough to make myself sound really silly. I would like to also say as a side comment, my, my father that is now you know, somewhat recently passed, he was he reinvented himself in the past few years as a cryptocurrency expert. His name's Arnold Waldstein. And so he tried to teach me a lot about blockchain and he was on the board of different companies that um, really supported social goods such as um, cacao and chocolate growing in third world countries and using blockchain to make sure that people are, um, I told you I wasn't going to be very good at this, that oh, people no, you're are actually getting, getting the resources and the payment for their cacao um, as, as, it, as it goes out to the whole world. So I'm, I, I didn't do a very good job at explaining that, but I would like to say that, yeah, block, blockchain is interesting and I only know enough to be, you know, to be dangerous, but um, any, anything that makes, uh, makes life easier protects people and is good for, you know, the consumer or the farmer, I'm, I'm very much in favor of. Yeah, that's so interesting. And unfortunately, it seems to have taken a dive unless there are some companies out there that are making some amazing things with blockchain that we don't know about. But um, I, I still hear about uh, companies faking uh, COAs and lab results. Um, and, you know, let's say as a consumer to know that I know exactly where everything came from and it's certified and you know, like digitally secure, like that would mean a lot. Uh, but then I wonder if it, this might be going similar to the route of say supplements that it uh, at some point it becomes so commoditized that people might just purchase it, and not be that concerned about where it came from. That's sort of the pessimistic yeah, you know, side of me. Hemp, hemp cannabinoid world is very different. You know, I, we like to say at Oppa, or Michael McGuffin likes to say, and I like to kind of parrot it is, you know, hemp CBD is just another herb, just like echinacea. But the differences are that in, in, in lack, in lieu of federal, you know, guidance and a lot of state regulation, to, to be totally honest, consumers in the marketplace have kind of been very, or have been very self-regulating. You would never go to a natural food store and say, I want a C of A for my echinacea root. 
or my turmeric root, but consumers demand that in the hemp CBD world, which is really, which is really amazing. So, you know, C, C of A's and C, C of A transparency, I think will be a lasting part of the hemp world. Um, and, and it's a good thing. Anything that makes the consumer feel better about getting products that are health giving to them and also helps them, um, you know, be kind of a self-policing or self-regulatory body. I'm, I'm in favor of, although yeah. it's kind of a pain in the neck to have to, you know, have to just to post C of A's for every lot of every product you're, you know, you're a manufacturer, you understand mm -hmm. that, but yeah. you know, if, if it supports good, you know, good consumer, um, um, you know, engagement and, and creates an ethical environment. Um, sure. I'm, I'm for it. Yeah. I, I think trust is still something that we have to work on. Uh, that's, that's still, uh, missing. Um, let's see, uh, getting close to wrapping up here. Any thoughts about what companies in the industry, or let's say the, the business owners or the entrepreneurs, what we should be doing now to succeed over the next few years? How should we be preparing? Um, safety studies, as I mentioned, that's really important for anyone mm -hmm. in the hemp cannabinoid world. Uh, re really thinking about, you know, who who your consumer is and how do you authentically get that message to your consumer in a way that's compliant. And, you know, just to kind of double down on really the, the gist of this whole talk is you want to make sure that you're not making over the top or high risk or, you know, red category claims. You may you may get away with it for a while, months, years, or you may not even get in trouble, but you never know when the FDA and FTC is going to pull your card. So any mature company in the industry should be investing and in making sure that they're developing best practices for ensuring they're not overtly or inadvertently making high-risk claims. Yeah. Okay, good. Um, all right. So... Um, what um, I, I'm sure after this, people will have uh, even more questions, and they're going to be flooding your email and your LinkedIn account. If somebody wants to get a hold of you, how should they connect? I love it. Well, bring it on. I, as, <laughs> as you know, I love this stuff. This is yeah. this is really me. My cat's over in the corner of my home office asking me why I'm getting so excited. Now, I love <laughs> this stuff. People can find me at my name, asawaldstein.com. That's asawaldstein.com. I have links to all my blogs there. LinkedIn is a great one. I'm very engaged on LinkedIn. And I put together a regulatory hints YouTube channel that you can link through my uh, through my website, asawaldstein.com, and then it links to my YouTube channel. On there, I've got most of my past events, and then I do little vignettes that I really like using as training tools, such as what's the big deal with getting a warning letter? We have we talk about reasons why you want to avoid a warning letter. I talk a lot about Prop 65 on there. So again, you can find me at asawaldstein.com or my same name on LinkedIn. Yeah, uh, and Asa, just in the short amount of time that we've been um, speaking, uh, value what you put out. You have a lot of really good content, really good information. Uh, it's very practical. Uh, so it's not just the, well, you can't do anything, right? Like, a, you, you know, you have your rating system and I'm going to be waiting for your, your ASA star rating warning system thing. I don't know, weekly basis, maybe uh, I, I would subscribe to that. Um, but then, uh, yeah, if folks want to get a hold of you. I'll put links in the show notes and hopefully uh, you can have some good conversations with folks. And then uh, hopefully we can do another part of this because I'm sure this conversation is not done there's there are always going to be uh, many other important and interesting topics to talk about with uh, compliance and regulation thank you so much you know i i would like to say that i enjoy talking to you so much and i enjoy talking about compliance that we're having a big powder day we had 
10 inches at my local ski area, but I decided not to go ride the powder this morning. So I could come talk to you, Jason, in the Hemp Startup Journey community out there. So yeah, I had a lot of fun with this. Thank you. Thank you again. I'm honored. So thank you so much. Talk to you soon. Talk to you soon. Thanks. Hey guys, and before you go, this is Jason from Spectrum Labs. Please be sure to visit us on the web at thespectrumlabs.com for any show notes and links discussed in the podcast. Also, remember to click the subscribe button wherever you may be listening from so you get notified when our next episode comes out. And tune in next show and have a fantastic day.